Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's edition of After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear. It is Friday, October 18th. The NBA season mere days away from starting. Extension season this weekend coming up with the deadline on Monday. So let's dive right into it with Bradley Beal yesterday signing a two-year $72 million extension with a player option for the second year with a 15% trade kicker and 50% advance payments beginning in the league year for half of his annual salary for the years in the extension. So this is, I think, really good for both Washington and for Beal, the player. So looking at it first from Washington's standpoint, First off, you have to look at it. It's only a one-year extension. There is a 99.99999% chance that Bradley Beal is declining that player option. And really, it's only adding an extra year here. But for Washington, what this does is it gives their, or it gives them two options here. Or two paths, so to speak. The first is it makes Beal tradable for a longer period of time. Now, this summer, in my podcasts and on my Twitter, at BradClear, underscore, clear is spelled K-L-I-E-R, I had been beating the drum on the fact that I thought Washington was really missing a chance to maximize Beal's value by not trading him this offseason. Two years left on his deal. If you wait a year and there's only one year left, he can kind of dictate where he wants to go. Teams aren't going to be willing to give as much for a rental. They could have gotten an absolute haul for him this summer. And really, they resisted all trade discussions and overtures for Bradley Beal this offseason. Now, by adding this extra year, what it does, first off, it makes Beal uneligible to be traded until next offseason. But it will put Washington in the same position they were in this offseason as far as Beal having two years left on his contract and being super tradable for a monster haul. Whether it's next offseason, whether it's even with a year and a half left at the 2021 trade deadline, Washington now has given themselves a long period of time within which they can trade Bradley Beal for a large return. And the other route, I mentioned those two routes being available to them, were paths with this extension, you know, Beal obviously now committing, even though it's only for one year, but seemingly showing, hey, here's a bit of a commitment to this team now with a new great front office led by Tommy Shepard and Sashi Brown and John Thompson. Um, buying into this organization with this new structure who is now in a state where they're really at the bottom and going to be building up through the draft, him showing that commitment Perhaps things go really well, and after what will be three years, but after the first year of the extension, he opts out, at which point he's eligible for the 35% max. He signs it, that five-year deal for $250 million plus, and you have top 20 player Bradley Beal locked in as a fixture on your team for the long term as you add top-notch talent through your high draft picks in the next few years. So, either one, you now have the ability to trade Beal for a large haul 
for a longer period of time, or two, he's there locked in long term as the guy on your team as you build this team up from the bottom. Now, the merit of whether, you know, which is the correct path to take, that that's a whole separate discussion. But even though it was only for a year, or will end up being one extra year on his contract, had two years remaining um, after this year in which he cannot be traded because the six months goes past the trade deadline, he'll have two years before the player option year, which he's pretty much almost definitely going to decline. They're in the exact same position, as I said, next summer as they were this summer, where Beal is perhaps... You know, it's so much changes in such short time in the league, but very well it could be next summer that Beal, in a weak free agent class summer, the best trade, potential tradable player on the market, once again is Bradley Beal, and he can be a big swing factor for the teams, the top of the league, the elite teams in the league, looking to add a major talent next offseason, since free agency will not allow the ability to do so. So... Good on Washington, getting Beal in there to commit for what will end up being one extra year. He is now tradable for a large, large return, similar to those big returns that have been discussed from a team like Denver or others. He's now at the point where he can be traded for that large of a return until February of 2021. Whereas, had he not signed this extension, this offseason would have really been the end of that window to trade Beal for such a large amount. And really for Washington, the last bit on Washington's side of this, they got pretty lucky here that Beal surprisingly re-upped with them. Because had he not signed this extension, which I don't I didn't expect, I don't think many expected, they would have missed a window to trade their best player for a monster haul while they are rebuilding team. And had he not signed the extension, with there being two years left, his value would have kept decreasing and decreasing by the day. Now, perhaps he could have been traded for a large haul, traded for a large haul at the deadline, or what have you. But had he not signed this extension, they would have missed a major opportunity to maximize his trade value this past off season. Um, let's look at it now from Beal's standpoint. For Beal, I was again, as I just said, very surprised that he signed this extension. However, it's only one extra year. And let's say that Beal really likes it there in Washington, which seemingly is the case, right? And he wants to be there long term. Now what he's done, based off of the timing of this extension, where after that one year of the extension and three years total, now that the contract is four years for 130, including that fourth year player option, the second year of the extension... Should he, as I 99.99% expect, decline that player option, he'll be available or be able to sign that 35% max, which would be the biggest contract we've seen in the NBA worth five years or worth over $250 million over five years. So if he likes being in Washington and wants to be there long term, he's maximized his earning potential through doing this extension and leaving himself open to getting at 35% max at 10 years of service. Additionally with Beal is, should Washington, as I just mentioned, take the route of trading him, 
next offseason or at the trade deadline. Or, you know, with them being a bad team at the bottom in the process of building themselves up through the draft, should they come to realization that, hey, we would probably be better off here um, trading Bradley Beal to a team that can contend and win now, if or when that would happen, he has a 15% trade kicker. So should he want out? Should the team decide that it is in their best interest to trade him for that large haul I mentioned, he's going to stand to financially benefit from such a trade happening. So Beal here either is set up to stay in Washington long-term and maximize his earnings by doing so, or he gets traded, financially benefits from that, and depending on the timing of the trade, could steer his way towards a specific trade destination. It does take him out of that 2021 free agent summer where lots of teams have space, lots of teams are planning for right now with how incredible of a free agent class that 2021 summer will be, but at the same time also could make him one of the top pieces, if not the top piece available in the 2022 free agent market as well. Now, from the standpoint of the rest of the league, this takes away the one star who would have been available for trade, who could have potentially really swung the uh, level of championship contention for a specific team. You know, a team like Denver, had they been able to trade for Bradley Beal, or a team like Portland, had they been able to trade for Bradley Beal. You know, Bradley Beal, a top 20 player in the NBA, that's a player who would have swung championship contention in a very, very strong direction for whatever team he would have been traded towards, or traded to. Now, there is not an obvious or clear cut, if there's even one at all, star quality player who could potentially be traded during the course of this season. So this has big ramifications, obviously, on the league as a whole. So, to summarize, very, very surprised that this extension happened. However, it's only one year. Beal is going to financially benefit whether he stays long-term with the 35% max um, and the 50% um, advance payments each year of the contract, or he financially benefits if he gets traded with his 15% trade kicker, has the ability, now not being in the 2021 summer, to maybe be a headlining piece of the 2022 summer, or could steer himself towards a specific team depending on the timing of when a potential trade would occur. So this is a huge, huge payoff for Washington. As I said, they really risked missing out on such a valuable return for their best piece, whether that be a player or an asset, when they are in a rebuilding state. Had he not signed this extension, they would have been forced to trade him by the deadline or else it would have been a situation in which they would not have maximized their return, Beal could have dictated where he wanted to go, etc. So this is a huge win for them, especially with the, all the effort they've been putting in towards resisting all trade discussions around Beal, really making Beal the focal point of this entire organization, as publicly stated by Tommy Shepard, the new general manager, 
by the uh, organization itself. So, huge win for the Wizards. They have the ability now, next summer, to be in the same position they were this summer and to get a huge return for Beal, or they could have Beal long-term to have a top-20 player to go with whatever young players they come out of the draft with. A huge win for the Wizards, and for Beal, it keeps his options open, and if he likes it in Washington, it financially benefits him to take this route. Surprising, but a very good extension for both teams. Speaking of extensions that have sparked discussion between the player and the team, this one in a negative light, let's go to Sacramento and discuss Buddy Heald. So, Chris Haynes from Yahoo Sports, uh, in an article the other day, talking about the extension lay of the land, so to speak, uh, coming up to this October 21st deadline, he said that Sacramento had offered Buddy Heald four years for $90 million, while Heald and his representatives had been seeking four years for $110 million. Now, this seemingly blew up this past week. You know, Heald, um, in the media scrum post-game, really making comments saying, hey, you know, I want to be here. Free agents don't come to Sacramento. I felt insulted by being offered four for $90 million. I want my four for $110 million. Four for $100 million wouldn't be enough. If they don't extend me by this deadline, maybe it's time I look elsewhere. You know, really strong words that kind of escalated the situation. However, the reality of the situation is that Buddy Heal doesn't have leverage at all in this situation. And what's happening is he's trying to create some leverage for himself to get a bigger offer from Sacramento. Buddy Heald is really... Um, if he is the player that he was last year, again, Buddy Heald is really good. One of the three or four best shooters in the entire NBA. Now, if I'm Sacramento, right... He's Buddy Hill's restricted free agent um, next offseason. Buddy Hill had a great year last year, but you have the ability, if you're Sacramento, to sit there and stay or sit there and say, you know, he had a great year, but I really would like to see him have that quality of year again before committing nine figures to him. And that's a fair stance, and that seemingly is their stance. So, Sacramento here has the ability to say, hey, right now we're willing to give you $90 million. If you have the year that you had last year again, we'll happily pay you $110, $115 million over four years. Or, we'll just match whatever offer sheet comes your way in restricted free agency. There is no ability for the Kings to not control the situation. Now, you do run the risk of the animosity that exists now running into the season, which creates an un, um, an unhealthy and not positive vibe around the team. Maybe it creates uh, lingering negative feelings similar to uh, Utah with Gordon Hayward, how they made him go out and get the offer sheet from Charlotte that they matched. Then when Hayward later became a free agent, as we all know, he went to Boston. Perhaps that leads to long-lasting negative feelings like that. But to me, 
This shows me two things from Heald. One, he's trying to create some leverage for himself. And two, I think he wants to have this deal done before the season starts. You know, he seems very motivated to get the leverage on his side. Because, and and that's a fine route to take. Because, again, Sacramento, frankly, doesn't have to and shouldn't offer Buddy Heald $100 million or more right now. They don't have to. They can wait to do so. Because they have all the leverage. He has no way to outright leave this team. They can match an offer sheet. They don't have to trade him. They don't have to extend him right now. Now, talking about this situation, it brings up the whole discussion of the Sacramento Kings moving forward as far as their cap sheet is concerned. Because, as I said when I talked about it on my offseason recap podcast and on Twitter, they paid Harrison Barnes way too much money. Way too much. And I think what may happen is that contract may cost Sacramento either Bogdan Bogdanovich or Bogdan Bogdanovich or Buddy Heald. It may cost them one of the two because you look at their situation. Now, they, they structured Harrison Barnes's contract, so it's descending in per-year cap figures, but they committed $85 million to Harrison Barnes. Next summer... De'Aaron Fox is re- is eligible for his extension. And should he play as he did, if not better than he did last year? I mean, De'Aaron Fox is a total stud. One of the most valuable commodities in the league. That is a 5 for 170 player. So you take that into consideration. You take into consideration that the following offseason, Marvin Bagley would be up for an extension. And then you also take into account that Bogdanovich, at this point in time, is going to be a restricted free agent this coming summer as well. And Bogdanovich waited three years after he was drafted to come to the NBA, signed a deal for $9 million a year, bypassing the rookie scale. So he's going to want a nice raise off of that figure. And potentially, with how this team is structured, with Dwayne Dedman, Bagley, Harrison Barnes, Buddy Heald, Darren Fox... Bogdanovich may not start, and now right now the Kings have offered Bogdanovich four for fifty-one million, which is the most they can. But the point is, I can't see Sacramento, small market Sacramento. I can't see them being a big luxury tax team, and they're going to get very expensive very quickly. And I think they really made a mistake signing Harrison Barnes for the money that they did. Because I do think it's going to cost them either Buddy Heald or Bogdan Bogdanovich. And that should not be the case at all. Now, as far as Heald, again, getting back to Heald, if you don't get an extension done by this deadline, you know, there are people who have said, you know, I, I do not support this, but there is a logical argument towards do you gauge the value that Buddy Heald has because he's coming off of a fantastic season 
there's a lot of value in Buddy Heald right now. Buddy Heald's one of the 60 best players, 55, 50 best players in the NBA. One of the best three or four shooters in the NBA. Plenty of teams would want Buddy Heald. I love Buddy Heald and De'Aaron Fox in that backcourt. So I would not do this, but there is a rational argument towards seeking a trade or seeing what you could get in a trade for Buddy Heald. However, I think the route to take here is very simple. Maybe you bump your offer up a little bit, maybe to say 4 for 96, 4 for 98, maybe a little bit from that 4 for 90. You don't go to 4 for 110 until after the season or until you have to match an offer sheet for that figure. So really to summarize here, Sacramento has the leverage. Heald wants to get this extension done, is trying to get leverage on his side. Sacramento should not give him nine figures at this point. They should want to see him have the year he had last year again before giving him such a large amount of money. And frankly, what I think ultimately happens here with Sacramento is I think they'll get a deal done with Heald after the season. And I think Bogdan Bogdanovich is going to be the casualty as a result of that bad Harrison Barnes contract. But it's an interesting situation to monitor. I don't think they're going to get a deal done um, by the deadline. I hope they don't go the route of trading Buddy Heald, even though there is a rational thought process to doing so. But again, Sacramento holds the leverage. They're making the smart move here. They don't have to offer him $100 million. And after the season, I think they will get something done. Just have to see him do what he did again last year. Then you're totally fine to give him those nine figures after the season. You hold all the leverage. You don't have to give in at this point, even though there are the potential ramifications um, of negative long-term lingering feelings um, or a bad vibe coming into the season. The only way that could come back to bite you would be if Heald were to sign a or sign an offer sheet with another team that you match that has a smaller amount of years, like a two with an option for a three kind of thing. Moving away from Sacramento now and Buddy Heald, let's go to Boston and discuss Jalen Brown. Um, in that aforementioned Chris Haynes article, he said that Jalen Brown turned down a four-year $80 million extension offer from the Celtics. This is a completely fair offer by the Celtics, Yet at the same time, Jalen Brown is completely justified in turning it down. I don't think either side is at fault here. You know, I had mentioned before on this podcast on Twitter, you know, Jalen Brown is not the easiest player to figure out a dollar value for. Is he a $70 million guy? $80 million? $85? $90? $90? That's not an easy player. He is not an easy player to value as far as what he's worth over four years. But based on the market, Brown's making the right move here. I expect Brown to have a better year than he did last year. He regressed last year from what he played, or from the level that he played at in 2017-2018. I expect Brown to play better than he did last year. And should he do so, with this free agent market being so barren as far as unrestricted free agents, you look at a team, I've said them over and over on Twitter and on the podcast, the Atlanta Hawks would be all over Jalen Brown if he made it to restricted free agency. 
If Jalen Brown has a breakout year or a better year than he's had before, this is a guy who, with this market, should be able to get close to $100 million over four years. And from the Celtics, perhaps you can bump up the offer that they would be willing to give you as well. Even if Brown has a year comparable to what he got or what he had last year, I still think he would be able to get an offer sheet or an offer from the Celtics in the four-year, $74 to $82 million range. So basically, Brown's floor, I think, as far as what his second contract will be, is right in the vicinity of a four-year, $80 million deal. Maybe a little bit less. As I just mentioned, I think with another year like last year, 72 to 82 million over four years. So if you're Brown, you've established that your baseline and floor for your next contract is probably about what the Celtics have offered you, even though it's a fair offer right now. So you bet on yourself. And should he have a better year as I expect, with this market, he'll get a bigger offer from the Celtics or he'll get potentially maybe four for 96 or four for 100 from a team like the Hawks, maybe a team like Cleveland, maybe a team like Charlotte, who knows. The point is, a better year from Jalen Brown, or even a slightly better year, gets him close to $100 million. His floor is already at that $80 million range, so he does not have to take that money right now, because frankly, with the better year I expect him to have, I think he'll end up getting over $90 million over four years and close to 100. So he's making the right move here, passing up the four for 80 because his floor is at that level and he could very well with the better season with multiple suitors potentially out there get close to 100 million over four years. Now, this is a not this is not a relevant point towards negotiations for either guy, but just a fun thing I thought of. You know, if I were to sit here right now and say, long term, you know, let's say Buddy Heald has a season he had last year, and Jalen Brown has a better season than he did last year. Um, long term, if I had to commit four years, a hundred million dollars to either Buddy Heald or Jalen Brown, you know, with Brown playing. Um, better than he did, you know, around that 2017-18 form, and maybe even better, healed like he did last year, I'd rather probably have Buddy healed long-term just because that shooting and ability to create offensively and score at a high level is just so valuable. Um, A bit of an irrelevant point, but it's just a fun little thought to have. Um, Nonetheless, I think if healed has the year he did last year, and if Jalen Brown has a better year than he did last year, both of those things I expect. I think both guys healed, I think, would definitely get a hundred million dollars or a little bit more, between a hundred and a hundred and fifteen. And I think Brown would get between ninety-six and probably one oh four or one ten, should he have a better year or better than 2017, 2018 year. It's very interesting to look at all these different angles, you know, for healed and for Brown, and to really analyze the situation. Now let's go to a much simpler situation than Brown and Heald. Pascal Siakam up there in Toronto. This is a simple one, right? Pascal Siakam was the second best player 
on a championship-winning team last year. Pascal Siakam has all the makings and all the indications of being a future, long-term star player in the league. An all-star caliber player, one of the 25 best players in the league long-term. Like that, That's just what he's shown. That is the ability he has. So really here, this isn't much of a negotiation to really analyze. This is a guy who either gets a max contract or he gets very, very close to it. Maybe misses it by a three or four million dollars or five million dollars total. There's really not much to discuss here because he's a bona fide max guy. He's going to get a max or super close to it from the Toronto Raptors. Whether it comes by the deadline or after the season, it's coming. Another relatively simple to discuss extension case, Brandon Ingram with New Orleans. Simply put for both sides here, it's better to wait and to see what he does this season before really figuring out what he's worth long term. You have Ingram um, with his health concerns um, coming off. He had those blood clots last year. Um, how good he exactly is or will be with this New Orleans team. Um, from his standpoint, I think you'd want to build back up your value with a good year. From New Orleans' standpoint, you want to see his health hold up and to see how good he is, how um, he fits with all the pieces they have around him on this team. So that's a very simple case, really, of both sides, the team and Ingram. It's in both their best interest to wait until after the season. The really interesting one that hasn't gotten as much buzz is Demodis Sabonis with Indiana. I've said it ad nauseum. Indiana, Turner and Sabonis is not going to work. It's just not. They're going to have to trade one of them eventually. It's going to happen. What is Demodis Sabonis worth for an extension? You know, we look at Miles Turner. Miles Turner signing that four-year deal for $72 million with the ability to end up being worth $80 million over four years, signing that last October. I would think that Sabonis is probably worth, you know, a similar contract around four years for 68 to $72 million. That, that would be my guess, you know, that $18 million, $17 million a year range. But assuming... You know, he signs an extension with Indiana. You look at having Sabonis and Turner. It's interesting to look at, you know, which one should they sign Sabonis to an extension in that four-year, 68 to $72 million range I just mentioned. Who would have more value as far as a trade is concerned between Sabonis and Turner on very similar contracts? You know, I, I think the answer to that, slight, it's probably Miles Turner, just because of the uh, better rim protection, um, the better three-point shooting. Um, I think there's more upside with Miles Turner. You know, I've mentioned on this podcast before the idea of Jalen Brown traded for Demodis Sabonis. You know, maybe, you know, Jalen Brown for Miles Turner. Again, it makes sense for a roster construction sense. I think an extension gets done between Sabonis and Indiana by the deadline because Indiana's really staked their team and their roster construction on Sabonis and Turner together. I don't think it's going to work. Never have until I'm proven otherwise. So to me, it's interesting. 
assuming Sabonis would get around a similar amount per year, what um, value Sabonis or Turner would have and which one would be more likely to be traded. I just think there's a lot of implications from a Sabonis extension as far as roster construction, as far as uh, the cap sheet is concerned for Indiana. But Sabonis is one of the extensions that I would expect to get done by the deadline based off of the commitment Indiana has made towards him and Turner together, and then ultimately the need that Indiana would have to be able to turn around and trade either Sabonis or Turner. And locking in Sabonis on a four-year deal around 68 to $72 million, to me, makes it either easier to trade him or easier to trade Turner and slide Sabonis at the five spot, and he's at the five spot long-term because you have that assurance that both are locked up should you choose to trade the other and keep the other. Now, to end this episode of After the Final Whistle, uh, I'm going to move away from extensions, and I'm going to give some season predictions of mine. First off, my Eastern Conference and Western Conference playoff seeding predictions. In the Eastern Conference, the Bucks 1, the Sixers 2, Celtics 3, Nets 4, Raptors 5, Miami 6, Indiana 7, Orlando 8, Detroit 9, Atlanta 10, Chicago 11, the Knicks 12th, Washington 13th, Cavs 14, Hornets 15th. Moving to the West, the Clippers 1, which might be tough with this initial six weeks or so to the season that Paul George is out. But I'm sticking with the Clippers just barely as being the one seed in the West. The Nuggets second, Utah third. I'm really, really high on Utah. As I mentioned in my Western Conference uh, offseason recap podcast, love the offseason they had. I think Bogdanovich is going to make a huge difference for them. I think Mike Conley is going to make an enormous difference for them. Uh, The Lakers 4th, the Rockets 5th, Portland 6th, Golden State 7th. By no means do I look at Golden State as a lock to make the playoffs. I'm going to have them in there at 7, but if they did not make the playoffs, it would not surprise me a ton. At number 8, it gets tricky now with Zion being out for a couple weeks to start the season. Because of that, I'm very tempted to move the Pelicans out of that 8 spot. I think I'm going to. I think I'm going to put the Spurs in there for that 8th spot. New Orleans 9th. The Kings 10th. Dallas 11th. Minnesota 12th. OKC 13th. Right now, I think OKC is definitely a better team than Minnesota, but as the season goes on, I think Gallinari is going to be traded, if not more than just Gallinari, from Oklahoma City. And then Phoenix 14th, and then Memphis 15th. I'll then predict that the Clippers beat the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals. I just think the Lakers are going to be a better playoff team than regular season team. I'll take Milwaukee over the Sixers in the Eastern Conference Finals. That is a tough one because the Sixers are going to be, in my opinion, I think are going to be the best defense in the league with that starting five with Matisse Thybulle looking like uh, Robert Covington 
2.0 for the Sixers team. I'm just going to give it to Milwaukee by a hair. Now, perhaps that's assuming too much from Eric Bledsoe in the playoffs after what we saw last year, but just barely, I'm going to give it to Milwaukee over the Sixers, and then from there, I'll take it to Clippers over Milwaukee in the finals. The bottom six teams in the league from worst to sixth worst, uh, Charlotte, Cleveland, Washington, Memphis, the Knicks, and the Suns. Award predictions. I think Giannis will take the MVP with Steph Curry, James Harden, Damian Lillard, and Anthony Davis rounding out the top five in some order. I saw Zach Lowe today wrote that he believes Steph Curry will win the scoring title but not win the MVP. I think that's a pretty good prediction. I might even predict that myself. Looking at that, um, pass MVP. I know he's got the injury stuff going on now, but I think Zion Williamson is going to be the rookie of the year. Other rookies I'm really interested to watch. Uh, John Morant has not gotten a lot of buzz. John Morant is going to be good. Tyler Hero from Miami I think is going to be fun to watch as well. Matisse Thybul I just mentioned I think is going to be, I mean, I don't think, you've seen it in preseason, is an absolute monster on the defensive end. Lots of rookies, Brandon Clark. There's lots of rookies, Nikhil Alexander-Walker. I keep interrupting myself. There's a lot of rookies that I'm really excited to watch this season. But by far, I think Zion's the rookie of the year. Defensive player of the year, I think, is tough. There's lots of guys that you can consider for this. Rudy Gobert, Joel Embiid, Draymond Green, Ka- uh, Kawhi Leonard, uh, Paul George, Giannis. This is a tough one. I want to say Embiid, but there is the concern that the Sixers will do the in the concern in the sense of the award that the Sixers will be smart and will load manage Embiid more aggressively this year, which may lower the amount of games that he's going to play, uh, and therefore lessen his candidacy for this award. With that being said. I think I'm going to go with Giannis as the Defensive Player of the Year, giving him the MVP and the Defensive Player of the Year award in my predictions. Sixth Man of the Year, how could you predict anyone besides Lou Williams? Most Improved, this is an interesting one. This is the one I look forward to a lot each year. Now, there's a lot of people who I think are candidates to really be improved, breakout candidates to take the leap, so to speak, this year. Some players who I think could be the ones to take the leap, who I don't have as my most improved player of the year prediction, I think Jonathan Isaac, I've said it before, Jamal Murray, Laurie Markkinen, Anthony Simons, Brandon Ingram, Josh Richardson, I think the Sixers are really going to empower him with having him create with the ball in his hands offensively, uh, not to mention with his good ability two-way as a very good defensive player. And DeJounte Murray, who was hyped up a lot prior to the season last year before he tore his ACL, I think that, you know, I don't think that Murray and White can play together in the same backcourt, especially with DeRozan at the three. I just don't think there's enough size there. And I think with DeRozan um, at the three, I, I just don't like that fit. I think it'll probably end up with Murray, Bryn Forbes, and DeMar DeRozan with um, Derek White coming off the bench. It's a good problem to have. Uh, but I think Murray's going to have an impressive year this year, just like Derek White did um, last year. My most improved player prediction, though, is Jason Tatum. I can't get over the Jason Tatum that we saw in the 2018 playoffs. 
leading that Kyrie-less, Gordon Hayward-less Celtics team in the Eastern Conference Finals against LeBron and the Cavs. Now, last year, his shot selection was poor. His get his um, desire and ability to get to the free throw line was poor. We've seen just how good Jason Tatum could be. With better shot selection, with an improved desire to draw fouls and get to the free throw line, with more three-point shots, with driving aggressively to the rim more, stopping settling for these long twos, Jason Tatum is everything you could want in a young player and a prospect and a modern wing. I think he's the most improved player in the league this year. I think he's going to be back to close to the form that we saw from him in the 2018 playoffs. But there are a lot of candidates for that um, award, as I just mentioned again. You know, should Jonathan Isaac take the leap to a Karis Levert Siakam level player? I mean, Levert one level, Siakam the next level, obviously. That's a player who could really swing the balance of power in the East. You know, we look at Jonathan Isaac, great size, incredibly athletic, great defensively on the perimeter, can defend on the interior, can def- uh, can switch across one to five, versatile, long, shot well from three in the second half of the year last year. If he can keep shooting threes as he did in the second half last year, can, uh, they said that he might be seven feet tall, might be 230 pounds at this point. If he's bulked up, can defend bigger players in the paint better, uh, maybe be able to have an offensive game a little bit in the paint, maybe be able to create some offense for himself. There's a lot of tools and traits there that make Jonathan Isaac a very attractive prediction as a player who could take the leap, so to speak, this year. Coach of the year, I'm going Quinn Snyder. I think Utah is going to be tremendous this year. I really do. I think that they will have an all-star this year. Whether it's Donovan Mitchell, whether it's Rudy Gobert, whether it's Mike Conley. Defensively, I think they're going to be great. I think Boyan Bogdanovich was an incredible signing. The trade for Conley was awesome. I think they need one more trade, you know, to get a tweener type in there. After they made that trade, sending Jay Crowder out in the Conley trade, I remember in my offseason tweets and recap, I had expressed how great it would have been if they could have gotten someone like Damari Carroll. Obviously, he priced himself out with the contract he got from San Antonio, but they need someone in that vein, like a tweener type at the four, who's best off at the four, but can play a little bit of three also, uh, can play good defense and can shoot threes. Um, So whether that's, you know, Zach Lowe mentioned Marcus Morris, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, seeing what they can do as far as trading for a tweener type who can play good defense and can switch a little bit and shoot threes, that's the type of player they need. But outside of that, I really like this group that Utah has this year. I have them as the three seed in the West. I think they're going to be tremendous this year. So I'll go Quinn Snyder as the coach of the year. And then executive of the year, it's got to be Lawrence Frank. With how good the Clippers are going to be, with my prediction that they're going to be the best team in the league and the ultimate champion in the NBA... I think it's got to be Lawrence Frank as far as the executive of the year is concerned. Now, those are my standings and playoff predictions and award predictions. I'll be tweeting out my power rankings, you know, so you don't have to listen to go listen to me list and go 1 to 30 here on the podcast. 
Some predicted transactions I have for the year. I think I've mentioned it before. I think Danilo Gallinari to Portland for Ked Bazemore in a first-round draft pick. I'm predicting it. Um, it makes all the sense in the world. It's an easy trade for both teams. It's going to get OKC under the tax. It'll get Portland a difference-making player at the four without giving up Nasir Little or Anthony Simons and keeping Whiteside. It makes sense. I think it makes more sense for them to trade a first and Bazemore for Gallo than it would to trade, say, Whiteside, Nasir Little, and a first for Kevin Love. I like Gallinari because he's expiring. I like his ability to put the ball on the floor and score and be a big-time scorer at the four for Portland. And again, you don't have the long-term commitment to a big extent like you would with Kevin Love. And the return, I think, would have to be less. You know, you're not going to... I think you could get Gallinari, as I mentioned, with an expiring Bazemore and a first, and you wouldn't have to give up Simons or Little. I think Andrea Godala, in some form, whether it's a trade, whether it's a buyout, I'm going to lean towards a trade. I think that Andre Godala ends up on the Clippers. And I think this happens because I think the Clippers want to insure, uh, will want to ensure that they get Igadala through a trade so that they don't have to deal with the uncertainty, should he be bought out, of potentially choosing a team like the Lakers instead of choosing to sign with them. You know, Mo Harkless... Um, some second round picks, some capital from Detroit. They have some capital of their own from Detroit via the Sixers, some second round capital of their own. So Mo Harkless and some second round draft capital. I think that's realistic for Iguodala. I think I'll go also, I'll go with Jay Crowder to the Brooklyn Nets. I think he's out of there with Memphis at some point this year. I think Memphis will cash in further from that Conley trade that snowballed so many other ways to bring in assets and pieces and turn Jay Crowder into some second-round draft capital. I think Chris Paul will stay put on Oklahoma City through the season. I think Kyle Lowry will stay put on Toronto through the season. I would not be... I'm, I'm not super confident in that Lowry prediction. If, you know, you were to tell me, or if it were to happen in February that Kyle Lowry ends up on Miami for Justice Winslow and some other stuff, I wouldn't be too surprised. But I'm going to say he stays put. Now, Marcus Gasol and Serge Ibaka, I'm not going to go that far and predict that they stay because I feel even less certain about them and I'm not that certain about Lowry, but I'm going to lean towards being... Uh, towards predicting that Lowry stays put, as does Chris Paul. I just don't think there will be a match for Chris Paul in a trade. I do think Oklahoma City will manage to trade Dennis Schroeder, though. I I look at Memphis. I look at how they have Solomon Hill and Miles Plumlee's expiring contracts, and I, I look at that, and I, I try to think, you know, I don't know how willing Oklahoma City would be to do this, but if Memphis could turn one of those expirings, whether it's Plumlee or Solomon Hill, into Dennis Schroeder, who has this year and the year after that at $15 million a year remaining, if they could turn one of those two expirings into Schroeder and a second-round pick or two attached to it, 
I, I think that's pretty realistic and plausible. It would make sense for Memphis. And with that, that is the ep- at the end of this episode here of After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear. Be sure to check my Twitter at BradClear underscore. Clear is spelled K-L-I-E-R for my season tiers, my power rankings, predictions and rankings. Furthermore, on my Twitter before the NBA season starts. Again, I'm your host, Brad Clear, here on After the Final Whistle, Friday, October 18th. Be sure to check back here on podcast.com or Apple Podcasts for more episodes. Keep track of those extensions before the deadline coming up this week. Shout out to you, the listener. Shout out to the NBA season being days away. Again, I'm Brad Clear, host of After the Final Whistle. And as always, goodbye and good night.